Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This week, I'm joined by Charlotte McKechnie. Hi, Charlotte, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, all good here. And we're going to talk about all things phonics and literacy education, but let's start with our guests in numbers. So I don't know how familiar you are, Charlotte, with the, the format, but we try and get a feel for who our guests are just by, you know, some reasonably tough questions, I think, sometimes. So my first question is years as a teacher. Eight. First year group taught? Four. Last year group taught? Five. Most important year group? Reception. Favourite year group? One. Blog posts at linguisticphonics.wordpress.com? 24. And tweets? 3,178. That's respectable. So you're a teacher, senior lead for teacher development, specialist leader of education, an applied linguistics student, and sounds right literacy trainer. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Sure. So for my NQT year, I was placed in year four in a junior school, but I had taken the BA route into teaching and I absolutely loved my placements in early years in year one during that teacher training. So after completing my NQT year, I switched schools to Angel Academy in Peckham, where I joined the year one team. Uh, In year one, we were the first to go on the Sounds Right phonics training and it absolutely blew me away. Um, Within a year, our Key Stage 1 students were outperforming many of our Key Stage 2 students on reading and spelling tests. So the leadership team asked me to coordinate the implementation of phonics across the academy. And at the time I was doing an MA in education um, and I was reading and inquiring about phonics in Key Stage 2, as well as coaching and mentoring. So fast forward another year, I started training with Sounds Right as a Sounds Right trainer. And at first I was spending that time and that training working with teachers and leaders in Angel Oak and then in the trust that I work for, supporting them through their Sounds Right training. And that's when I started teaching in Upper Key Stage 2. And then in 2018, I joined the Trust's teaching school, which is now a teaching school hub. And since then, I've been working on teacher education, development and leadership programmes, and now delivering Sounds Right training to schools outside of the Trust. And what a teaching and learning team that is. You know, I mean, you've got some of the big thinkers and, you know, certainly in my opinion on primary education as part of that team. You know, what's that like? It's it's really, really a great team to work for. Um, It's really inspirational to be working alongside experts in their field. So uh, with Tom and Matt, you know, we always used to have conversations about maths and phonics and finding the links between because we had our specific areas of interest. Um, But also now with uh, Verity, Tom and Sarah having joined the team, we've just got a group of people who are really passionate about teacher education and then about different subject areas. So it's really inspiring and interesting to work in that team. Um, so we can have a lot of long conversations, but a lot of really interesting conversations. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it'd be great to just sit and talk about education, you know, as your, as your main sort of role. That'd be, that'd be fantastic. And, you know, we're, obviously we're going to get, because every time I speak to people about phonics and, and the direction schools should be moving, you know, your name comes up quite a lot. But when I saw that you were studying applied linguistics, you know, that, that sounds fascinating. Um, what, what does the study of applied linguistics entail? Um, so it's basically a branch of linguistics which is concerned with solving practical problems in language. So it might be things like language teaching, language ideologies or language policy and practice. 
Um, but the bit that I'm particularly interested in is language in the brain and communication disorders. So I'm going to be studying neuro and psycholinguistics over the next two years. Uh, Neurolinguistics deals with the relationship between language and brain functioning, and psycholinguistics is the relationship between language and psychological processes. So that includes first and second and additional language acquisition. Um, but that is all I know. I haven't started those modules just yet. Um, and the reason why I sort of became interested in linguistics was that at the beginning of this year, I studied two online courses with professors Pam Snow and Tanya Sari, and they teach at the La Trobe University in Australia. The courses were introducing us to the science and language of reading. And I think we as a profession are starting to develop a good shared understanding of how to teach word recognition. And I'm interested now in how best to teach language comprehension, particularly to students who have barriers such as communication disorders or speaking English as a foreign language. Whenever I was researching storytelling, there would be things about, there was a young girl in Romania who was kept in a basement for maybe the first 14 years of her life. And yeah. her language development could never reach the fluency that, um, that someone else, you know, who, who didn't have that sort of disadvantage when they, when they grew up, you know, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, so there's a critical period of early language experiences in the sort of naught to four years. And that's when a lot of the networks are formed for communication. And it's thought that sort of if that those early experiences of language aren't secure, then the foundations are never built. So I, I know the case that you're talking about there. Um, and yet that that child was never able to to catch up. And I think there were a lot of really questionable, unethical experiments and research sort of looking into that. Um, but yeah, there's believed to be this this window where children not only develop their language, but also it's a lot to do with their emotional well-being is developed at that point. So will you be exploring like um, there's some studies on people who lose like half their brain, that kind of thing? Yeah, so that comes under aphasia, which is just a loss of language. So um, it won't just be children because it, it can be triggered from traumatic events, brain injuries, strokes and, and so on. So, yeah, that will be part of neurolinguistics. Um, but I imagine it will overlap into psycholinguistics as well. I think they're very, very similar. But psycho psycholinguistics just includes the social side as well. I'm hoping to find out more about the differences when I've, when I've started studying them. Right, so we're in danger of this becoming two hours of me asking you about, about this course. <laughs> um, so you're extremely passionate about high quality literacy education in primary, you know, and it might seem a really obvious question, but why is the highest standard of literacy provision essential in our phase of education? I think a useful place to start here is the Matthew effect and the idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So in other words, good readers improve at a faster pace whereas poor readers improve at a slower pace, which therefore increases the attainment gap between stronger and weaker readers. Uh, it's impossible to ignore the limited access that students have to the curriculum if they're struggling with reading, and that it must be inc incredibly challenging to express yourself without being able to write. We read and write in every subject, so the highest standard of literacy provision at primary will allow students to think about the content 
rather than the mechanics of reading, and it will allow them to access the curriculum. There have also been various studies that link literacy and life expectancy, and studies that have found that limited literacy influences mental health. So the highest standard of literacy provision is going to allow us to improve students' literacy and mitigate against these adverse correlations and causations. Yeah, I can see that, Amanda. Chris Such mentioned the link between literacy and, and sort of what happens in the future, you know, depending on how, how much you engage. But I totally say that, you know, because working in schools where our kids are starting so much lower than, than sort of their more affluent peers, you know, you can see that, you know, our, our job is basically to try and get them back up, you know, so that the rich don't get richer, you know, and that everyone's got equal access. That makes a whole lot of sense. And if you had to condense your approach to the teaching of phonics into a set of guiding principles, what would they be? Firstly, a shared understanding of how students learn to read and how student how to teach students to read amongst the staff in primary school. So everybody should know about what to do when there's this issue or what it looks like at the beginning or towards the later stages, regardless of which year groups they work with. And that shared understanding shouldn't just be the teaching team, but it should also extend to parents and carers. Um, I also am a real supporter of whole class teaching. So everybody learning together with their class rather than being split into perceived attainment groups. Um, but for that to be successful, of course, there needs to be early intervention. So providing those catch up and those keep up interventions where necessary and as soon as possible. And also incorporating decodable readers into whole class teaching in reception in year one and beyond that for those who need it. Uh, so in summary, CPD and staff knowledge, whole class teaching, early intervention, and appropriate resources. Does your approach to intervention sort of mirror what Matt has in place for mathematics? Yes, absolutely. So um, it would be the keep up interventions would be the same day interventions in response to the performance in the phonics lesson, whereas the catch up interventions are informed by diagnostic assessments where we've identified gaps and we're trying to close them. And so like he would use assemblies. Is it the daily mileage you guys use later on in the afternoon or do, do the teachers make a decision on which one to do in one way? And I'm just thinking of the practicalities of people listening and thinking, well, how can we make this a thing that we do? Yeah, so I think with interventions, we have to get quite uh, creative and inventive in terms of the time to lead them. And we haven't just got phonics interventions. We may also have handwriting or maths interventions. So when I was working in year one, we had to be really creative with our time. So there were lots of different opportunities in the day. Uh, one example is assembly. We would have one teacher take the students to assembly whilst the other two teachers led interventions. We would also lead interventions first thing in the morning. So there would always be some early morning work for the children that they would complete during the soft opening, which would allow us to work with a small group for a part, a section of that time. And then the rest of the time would be greeting the children and welcoming them to the day. And another example is much like one teacher supervising the children for assembly, we would do the same for story time. So we would take turns sharing the story with the year group whilst the other teachers led interventions. So it was all about minimizing disruption to other subjects, um, but we had to be quite 
fluid and flexible in those groups because it wouldn't be right for one child to miss all of the story times or all of the assemblies. Yeah, I think that, that being creative is the, is the important thing, isn't it? Because there definitely aren't enough hours for all the things we want to do. But then, yeah, I think yeah, a, a solid approach. And in terms of CPD, obviously you guys are sort of slightly set up in a way that you've got the specialist team who can provide you know, really carefully sequenced um, and almost immediate CPD based on the needs of the schools. What would you recommend, and I'm, not, and I'm putting you on the spot, to schools developing their approach to CPD and phonics? What, what, what should they do? What, what should they be looking out for? So they, they absolutely need a phonics champion in school. I think all too often the English coordinator also has phonics as sort of an area of responsibility, but phonics is huge. And I don't think it's practical or even possible to manage your workload if you're leading English and phonics and all your other roles in school. So I would definitely recommend that a school develops a phonics champion to coordinate phonics and to be responsible for that CPD. And the way that Angel Oak achieved this with a lot of their subject areas was that the trust actually sponsors staff to complete master's study. So I was made the phonics champion whilst I was studying an MA in education supported by the trust. And the expectation there was that I would use my studies to learn more about um, the teaching of reading and supporting teachers in teaching reading. So a lot of the things that I was reading were really relevant to what we were doing in school. So there was a, a protected and sacred half-termly CPD session carved out for phonics. And that would be about sharing aspects of the research or about practicing parts that to do with error correction or teaching the lessons. And that was really important, not only to keep people's training up to date, but to make sure that phonics was something that everyone was always thinking and talking about. So I would invest it in a champion to develop that in your school. And then as soon as possible, build a team around that. So although Angel Oak Academy is only a two form entry primary school, in my final year working there, there were four of us on the phonics team, which means that the CPD and the expertise doesn't sit in one person and it's shared amongst a group. So um, start with a champion and then build a team around them. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's going to be really useful for people who are listening. Um, yeah, because one of the things I'm always thinking about is how do I make sure the maths continues, you know, should, should our project ever, ever end? And you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's having those people around you who are, are, are reading the same things and are engaging with the, the content on the, on the same level, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. Phonics is, you know, it, it's growing every year, it seems. And, you know, maybe perhaps this year more than others because of the sort of systemic changes that have taken place. But, you know, I, I can't imagine someone being responsible for literacy and phonics and having the capacity to do both, you know, as well as they need to be done. In your opinion, what's the single most important aspect of phonics? Um, that it's taught systematically. So there are 44 sounds in the English language, all of which can be spelled in more than one way. And there are around 175 common spellings of these sounds, many of which do represent more than one sound. So there's a lot to teach and the best way to approach it is systematically. It's the only way we can guarantee that we're teaching all of the alternative spellings and pronunciation and everything we've learned about how children learn 
tells us about managing information, introducing it in small chunks, practicing it, revising it, retrieving it. So systematically teaching this sequence of 175 spellings is the only way to support children to getting to masteries as soon as possible. Yeah, because I think I was teaching quite a while before I realised that not all phonics was systematic. What are the alternatives to, to systematic synthetic phonics? So phonics itself is any approach to breaking down a word into smaller units of sound. Systematic synthetic phonics is concerned with um, synthetic meaning blending, uh, synthesizing here uh, and blending, but SSP deals with breaking things into phonemes. So when I mentioned the 44 sounds in the previous answer, that's the 44 phonemes in the English language. So SSP, systematic synthetic phonics, is teaching the spellings of those 44 sounds in a predetermined sequence. We've also got phonics such as analytical phonics, where instead of starting with the code and teaching the spellings and building up towards words, you start with words and then you break them down into sounds. And analytic phonics doesn't necessarily have a predetermined sequence. It teaches spellings as and when they arise. Um, and the problem is, is one of those examples, SSP, is like talking to somebody about the pedals and the gear stick and their steering wheel of a car before allowing them to begin driving. Whereas the other approach, analytic phonics, asks that we put the children in the car, we tell them to drive, and we then start teaching them about the smaller mechanisms of driving. Um, so analytic phonics is without a predetermined sequence, whereas SSP does have a predetermined sequence. It breaks things down into the smallest units of sound, and whereas other phonics approaches might be doing onset and rhyme or consonant blends, putting two consonant sounds together. Um, so phonics in itself um, might look, you might be teaching phonics in one school and it might look completely different to phonics in another school um, because there are so many different approaches to it. And like you say, it's about if you want that party for everyone and everyone to get that high quality diet, you, you really do need to be, I think, sort of really structured in your approach and, and considered, you know, the, the, the pathway. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure both of my boys, you know, they're seven and four. And they've learned to read, you know, in, in the trap of a hat, because I think the approach was really carefully thought through. You know, I, I couldn't get, I couldn't say hand on heart exactly which program they were following. Probably not for me to do that on this uh, podcast either. But, you know, seeing, I, I certainly am taught them to read, but they're both, you know, they're both absolutely fine with the, what I see as a structured approach that makes a whole lot of sense. So in, in reference to the principles you outlined earlier, what might these look like in practice in a school that was doing a particularly good job of teaching phonics? So to achieve that shared understanding, the school would ideally be teaching a particular phonics program with fidelity. And there should be a phonics champion coordinating phonics in the school, running regular CPD sessions and facilitating peer observations. Whole class teaching, meaning that the whole class are working on the same skills and part of the code together. And those who need more practice are benefiting from keep up interventions. For those who are struggling, they'll need to attend daily catch-up interventions to close the gap. But the key thing is that those students aren't removed from the phonics lesson. These interventions need to take place at a different time because if we're taking them out of their whole class phonics lesson and putting them in a catch-up group, 
realistically, they're not going to catch up. They're going to be working behind their class. And the best case scenario is that they continue to have their intervention all through primary school uh, and unfortunately leave year six being weaker readers than their peers. Worst case scenarios, they have these interventions until key stage two, and then the interventions just stop and they just stop at the point that they reached, which happens uh, far too often. Um, so for those who are struggling, they should still be in that whole class lesson with the targeted event intervention at a different time during the day. Um, for this to be successful, it does need early intervention. So that's sometimes identifying students who, who need more practice than their peers. And that might be due to how quickly the children are grasping the content, but it may also be to do with attendance or pupil well-being, various reasons why they haven't been able to attend to the learning. And then with the final guiding principle, um, the inclusion of the codable readers. So ideally, these should be used daily in reception in year one, a whole class, choral reading or one-to-one -one reading. But then there should also be decodable texts available in school beyond year one for those who need it. I feel quite passionate about providing decodable texts to early readers because they're absolutely brilliant for their intended purpose. And that's for reaching automaticity in decoding. They are not in any way designed to give children that broad and rich experience of text, but they're not supposed to be doing that. It's just a controlled environment for students to be able to practice something. Again, much like learning an instrument or learning to drive, there are certain things, there are certain skills that we drill and we practice to help with the fluent um, execution of that, that thing. Um, a footballer will practice their dribbling, but we wouldn't say that person that right there is playing football, they're just practicing part of it. And it's the same with reading. When you're reading a decodable text, you're practicing decoding, you're practicing retrieving sound spelling correspondences, and that's only going to aid the process of reading. Yeah, I, th I think that's a view that gets misrepresented sometimes online. Now, obviously, it's a very small number of people who are having these conversations, but they sort of think, oh, this is the only thing, but actually, you know, I think you've done a really good job of explaining how they had supplements, you know, and allows people the opportunity to one day develop a love of reading. And are there any pitfalls that those listening should aim to avoid? Yes. So um, remember that the phonics screening check doesn't assess whether a child has mastered phonics decoding um, and it isn't supposed to. The check is there to assess whether a child has met the minimum expected standard for the end of year one. Again, all too often, schools see the year one phonics screening check as almost the graduation point from phonics and if a child passes the check that might be the end of their phonics provision but what they're doing there is they're capping the child's phonics teaching at the minimum expected standard for year one which depending on the phonics program you use is often either a third or halfway through the code so you're stopping phonics far sooner than you should be if you see the phonics screening check as your end goal. So it's almost thinking about how we can use year two and potentially year three. I've definitely heard people talk about year three in the first term, you know, because yeah, it, it always surprised me whenever, you know, the check wasn't necessarily measuring the entirety of the of the code, as you say, you know. So I think, yeah, that, that, that does seem quite a, a big pitfall to try and avoid. Yeah, I mean, the phonics screening check should be viewed as a checkpoint because 
it only assesses around 60 to 70 spellings, whereas there are 175 spellings that the students need to know. So it really is just a checkpoint to see if students are making the expected progress towards that. And apparently its introduction was about nudging us towards children who perhaps are need, require intervention, but we haven't identified them as a child who requires intervention. So it's about avoiding children slipping through the net. But I think that in a lot of schools, it is understood as the end point, as the, as the goal. And although a little bit of phonics teaching might continue into year two, it's often swept aside as soon as possible. Whereas the schools that I work with very much see it as the checkpoint in year one and phonics teaching continues until the end of year six. I, I might clip that one bit and then just broadcast it as much as I possibly can so that, so that that's something that, that is avoided. What are, what are the features of a high quality phonics programme um, and how does this continue in teaching spelling in key states too? I think we may have already touched on this slightly. Yep, so the skills of blending, segmenting and phoneme manipulation are taught to mastery and the way that we can assess whether a phonics program is, is teaching them to mastery is by looking at the, the balance given to reading and writing, blending and segmenting. I think too often the focus is on blending, but segmenting is just as important. It's the other side of the coin. Um, and some programs don't even include phony manipulation. So the first thing I would be checking for would be for whether those three skills are given the adequate time for practice. I would then be looking for whether code knowledge is taught through the systematic introduction of sound spelling correspondences and whether all 175 spellings are taught. Um, decodable text absolutely would be at, taught at beginning stages and if you're looking for a phonics program, ideally you'd be looking for one that it, it may well have complementary and supplementary decodable readers for sale, but that high quality program should also provide perhaps printable text for each of these stages, because that phonics program therefore believes in the inclusion of decodable text and it's not just a moneymaker, um, they'll then be providing the stories. Um, you want to be looking at not only the systematic introduction of spellings, but also the expectation of the incidental teaching of sound spelling correspondences when they arise. So the programme should come with scripting, perhaps, or advice about error corrections when you encounter reading or spelling errors, which takes me on to ensuring that schools who are using high quality programmes are correcting all reading errors through phonics rather than giving the whole word and that's the same for spelling. A high quality phonics programme will also be teaching students to deal with polysyllabic words and introducing etymology and morphology in key stage one and expanding on that in key stage two. And then in terms of continuing teaching spelling in key stage two, everything should be building on what's been taught in early years in key stage one. So that means teaching spelling through the sound spelling correspondences, or through the meaning of the morpheme or where the word comes from and continuing to error correct reading and spelling errors through phonics. And alongside all of this, there should be keep up and catch up interventions for those who need it, regardless of the age of the child. So the idea that, oh, you know, this child's in year four and, and therefore phonics doesn't work for them, I think is a really flawed idea because actually, if a child is struggling to read in year four, then it's likely that 
the approach that's been used hasn't worked for them. Perhaps it wasn't rigorous enough, frequent enough, or um, allowing a lot, enough opportunities for practice and retrieval. That child shouldn't be written off and given uh, a less well-evidenced approach. They should be given a high quality approach to the teaching of phonics. Obviously, my brain goes to maths, but if a pupil doesn't understand place value, you're not going to push on with trigonometry and stuff like that there, you know, and hope that, you know, it something works. You know, you're going to go back and you're going to fill those gaps, aren't you? And, yeah, absolutely. You know, so are you almost seeing with the with the structured introduction of science, you almost it's almost partly hierarchical, the, the way those they are structured? So I think any approach to teaching phonics needs to start with a transparent code. So that's what's typically taught in reception. It's got various names depending on what program you use. But sounds right, we refer to it as an initial code. Diane McGuinness would call it the basic code. But essentially, it's teaching the letters of the alphabet, a few two-letter spellings, and it's giving children one correspondence in the first instance. And the reason for this is reading and writing is hard, especially using an opaque orthography like English. So we need to spend that first year or the first couple of terms building up children's experience of the code and building their trust in the code. They need to trust that when they say the sounds, they can write a word. And when they say the sounds, they can read a word. So I think most systematic synthetic phonics programs would start with this transparent code. And then beyond that, the approaches differ um, in terms of how the code is then introduced. But it does need to be hierarchical because you do need to first teach the first spellings, then more spellings, and then begin to unpick where words come from and looking at words that have been anglicized or where words pronunciation and spelling has changed. And then we can start to think about morphemes. Um, with very young children, it can be really difficult to teach morphology because they might be new to learning English. They might be, well, we know that they're expanding their vocabularies at a really fast pace in the lower years of the school. So you have to decide when they're conceptually ready to start thinking of a word as perhaps containing two or more morphemes and containing two or more units of meaning. And when they're ready, we can then start to talk about the meaning there rather than just the sound spelling correspondences. And certainly for someone like me, who's, you know, almost a blank slate, you know, I, <laughs> I thought I knew a lot about phonics, but, you know, just listening to you, Sean, I'm like, <laughs> I only thought, I only thought that. What would be the difference between a linguistic programme and other SSPs? So I remember asking this question myself when I was a participant on the Sounds Right training, and I can remember hearing the answer and not and still not fully understanding and seeing the difference between the two so I'll do my best here and it was nothing to do with the trainer's explanation it was to do with my understanding or lack of understanding of the power of conceptual understanding there are a few key differences the first is conceptual a second is to do with flashcards and the third is to do with phonics phases so other SSP programs are often spelling focused and the students are asked, what sound does this make? So the teacher points to a spelling and the children tell the teacher what sound a spelling makes. However, in linguistic phonics, we don't suggest that letters make sounds because we're sound focused. 
So instead of asking what letter, which sound is made by this letter, we ask, how do I represent? How do I spell a sound? So that little shift might seem really small, makes versus spells, but conceptually it's huge because when we're saying a letter makes sounds, we're ignoring the fundamental fact that actually we make fat sounds. We as humans who are speaking are producing the sounds. We've been speaking for over a hundred thousand years, whereas those letters that represent those sounds, they've only been in use for around 5,000 years. So sounds absolutely come first, which is why a linguistic phonics approach is sound focused. Lots of other SSP approaches will begin a phonics lesson by showing children flashcards. Each flashcard will have a letter or a couple of letters on it and children will say the sound. If they were shown the letter A, they might say A. Ah. Now there are a few issues here. Firstly, the letter A doesn't make anything and it isn't A. It is the letter A until we put it in the context of a word. So if my flashcard said the word bag and I pointed to the letter A and I'd say, what sound is this? Then yes, it would be A in that example, but on its own, it's nothing. Using flashcards teaches a fixed representation. It says this letter is A, but in the word able, it spells A. In what, it spells O, in many, it spells E, and so on. Um, and this takes me to the final point about teaching phonics in phases. With the letter A representing various sounds, you might argue that you agree, but that those sound spelling correspondences, such as A in able, O in what, um, are going to be taught in later phases. But the issue with phases is that students are first introduced to one representation of each of the 44 sounds. So typically they're taught that A-Y spells A. And the problem here is that if A-Y is the only spelling that child knows for the sound A, then every time they write a word with the sound A in it, they're going to use A-Y. Might not seem like a big deal, but the problem is that practice makes permanent. And if they're only using A-Y, they're going to use it in illogical places in the word. So A-Y is most often used at the end of a word. It can be before a morpheme, but it's usually towards the end. But if a child has been reading The Snail and the Whale by Julia Donaldson, they're going to spell snail, tail, whale with A-Y, and they're therefore putting A-Y in the middle of a word, which is an illogical placement of that spelling, and they're going to build that up as a, as a permanent spelling of A in the wrong place of a word. So with linguistic phonics, rather than having phases, after they've taught that initial, that basic code and reception, they then use a one sound different spelling approach and teach alternatives from the beginning. And I think that's what makes key difference between linguistic and SSP because linguistic thinks about spelling from the start and students are given equal weighting on reading and spelling whereas SSP often the focus is on blending 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 get through that phonic screening check and then key stage two suddenly these students aren't spelling very well and often I think the answer to that is to do with their early experiences of spelling so in summary SSP programs ask what sound this makes, whereas linguistic phonics asks how do I represent this sound and is sound focused, and the SSP approaches often contain phases in flashcard work, 
whereas linguistic phonics teaches alternative spellings from the beginning and spellings are taught in the context of words rather than in isolation. Yeah, it, it essentially taking those priorities and making them central to what what you do, isn't it? Yeah, so I can I can definitely see that. And I can, you know, you're saying it's a small distinction, but actually it's a really important one that it begins with and that feeds how your phonics looks through everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as teachers, we know that make, use, represent, we're, we're using them as synonyms, but as a four-year-old, a five-year-old, or somebody who's new to English, especially someone who's new to English, make means making, and using that language can be really ambiguous, so it's best to, to be really honest and accurate with the language. Yeah, and this, the same applies in maths, you know, because the, equal, the, the equivalent symbol gets so many names, you know, leaves, makes... Mm. You know, one, one really is equal to is the only appropriate sort of uh, way to describe it, because then whenever you come to things that equations that don't work out as linearly as they do in year one, you know, you've got big issues because they're not really seeing, you know, so I, I completely get you. Yeah, yeah, that I remember because when, when we first moved towards a mastery approach in maths, we did the maths mastery program. And the language in that was is equal to and I was teaching in year one at the time and I thought this is ridiculous it's more words and I can't see the value in this um then after a few months made complete sense why we said it and they actually understood what the equal sign was was doing there so yeah I've, I agree with that with maths um it's funny though isn't it how you can hear it from it you know everyone but until you see proof in your pudding in your school you might not believe it and how, how do you approach the planning of phonics you know over the long and the short term um so it's always useful to have a long-term plan for each year group and to treat these like working documents so when i was working at angel oak at the end of each academic year i would meet with the year group and they'd have edited their long-term plan as they were going along and I would use their knowledge and their experience of how that academic year went to tweak the long-term plan for the next year. So some examples of some tweaks include that when I met with the reception team, they told me actually there were far more um, incidental pieces of code that they were teaching because they needed the children to write words like he, me, she, we. So we planned to cover the letter E and the spelling E earlier on than we had done previously through looking at high frequency words. So those long-term plans, I think, should be tweaked annually with the experienced year group teachers. Um, so those who've taught that year and then your phonics champion. Um, but short-term planning needs to be designed in light of the current group of students. So this needs to be done weekly with each new year group responding to the year and the needs of the class. Intervention planning, particularly for keep up interventions, needs to be done daily because you don't know what to teach your intervention until you know what the students have struggled with that day. With this in mind, it's a major red flag for me when a phonics programme provides daily planning. When a phonics programme comes with a guide and you read from it each day and that's what you teach and you don't really divert from it, that's something that I would stay well away from because that plan doesn't know your children. Only you and the adults working with your class know your children and know what they're struggling with. So, yeah, so it's, it's about that ability to be responsive, both within a year and within a given sequence, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And would, would the resources, so like say you're, you're making, you're, you're, you're deciding, oh, I need to do some ketchup. Are you utilizing resources that you already have to, to, to feed that, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. So if a particular resource does the job, um, for example, with sounds, right, there's an activity where we have a list of words and we sort them by the spelling of a sound. That resource and that um, template for a worksheet works really well. It does exactly what it's intended to do without any distractors. So that's the resource I always use for that task, regardless of whether that's whole class teaching, intervention, homework, anything. So a high quality phonics program should include activities with different purposes. And that one activity is, if it does its job, it's the only one I would use. I know that with some phonics programs, particularly websites with phonics games, present the same concepts in lots of different ways and lots of different games. And that can really distract children and take away from what they're actually doing. So absolutely, an intervention should be, should really mirror what a whole class phonics lesson looks like. You should be covering the concepts in the same way. And that intervention is about providing more and more practice rather than something different. I think if children are familiar with the type of activity, they can attend more to the actual content. You know, whereas I think about my, my practice at the very start, I would dress things up in 60 or 70 different ways. Maybe that wasn't as helpful as I could have been at the time. Yes, I, I completely understand where you're, where you're coming from. A lot of the feedback I, I get to that when I, I make that point about just repeating the same thing is sort of people will ask me, oh, don't students find that really boring? Or don't they get frustrated with that? But actually, no, because there is nothing, in my opinion, there is nothing more empowering than being able to read and being able to access anything you want. So actually, I don't need to dress up phonics and, you know, wave a magic wand or use any puppets or toys or anything to engage the students because I'm passionate about teaching phonics. I know where it's going to take them. And then the students become passionate about it because they can, they're aware of themselves making progress and becoming readers. So I can see the resistance if you've used quite flashy and jazzy approaches to phonics in the past. I can see the resistance towards moving towards something that is just practice. But if you were to switch sides and to try that approach for a few months and, and see the progress the children make, I think that's enough to win anyone over and realize actually what I was doing was providing experiences, whereas what I'm doing now is just teaching reading and writing. Yeah, the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? You know, whenever I rolled out textbooks in maths, you know, one of the things that the new teacher would come taking on was, you know, the lack of autonomy. And they soon realized that actually they don't. They've just got this very, you know, clear outline of where we want to go. But like you say, every class is different. So no two teachers will be the same in the way, in the way they interpret it, you know, but it is, yeah, try it and see the difference. And then you actually, you're never going to go back really, are you? Absolutely. And so what would you recommend anyone wishing to develop their phonics prowess, you know, in, in terms of teaching, you know, what should they read, you know, books, papers, blogs and, and podcasts? Um, so for what to read, a really good place to start, if you can get your hands on it, is Diane McGuinness's early reading instruction. So when I was first interested in becoming a Sounds Right trainer, John Walker, who is the one of the founders and the director, 
he sent me a copy of early reading instruction and you know those light bulb moments you have when something really sort of makes everything make sense it's like that throughout the entire book um, and because it's so well referenced it then sends you down the path of reading various studies or works by others so that's a great place to start for some practical advice I'd recommend Chris Such's book The Art and Science of Primary Reading that will really get your phonics champion interested in, in sort of where to start with CPD and, and, and an audit within school. John Walker, who, um, who I mentioned previously, the director of Sounds Right, runs the literacy blog, and that's a treasure chest of blog posts. And I'd also recommend Googling Sounds Right Lexicon and exploring the various spellings of the sounds. It can be really eye-opening to look at the Sounds Right lexicon and to see how many different representations there are of each sound. Another piece of, of advice I would give you is to look into master's study. I know that that's easier said than done, particularly as I'm somebody who doesn't have children that I'm responsible for at home. I know it could be a lot harder for somebody if they are caring for children or others at home, but engaging with master's study allows you to meet and network with other educationalists and other practitioners, and it encourages you to engage with academic reading and to engage with research, and you can then direct it towards phonics if you choose to, or whichever area of responsibility you have. Um, but that's a great way of, of meeting other people and, and finding papers and, and relevant rigorous research um, linked to your area. Yeah, and I think if a school is genuinely interested in being evidence informed and, and, and sort of research informed, you know, giving teachers the time to conduct those studies during their working hours is certainly something I think they should be recommending, you know, because then, um, yeah, it's an investment in the school long term, because if you get someone, you know, who's operating on the level that you're operating on, Charlotte, you know, then the impact is immeasurable, I think, you know, so maybe an investment at the, at the time, but certainly worth it, you know, and uh, for me, a way to keep, uh, keep teachers engaged in, in their own development. Yeah, and, and research does show that teachers who engage with high quality CPD are more likely to stay in their roles and, and to stay in their schools and the profession. So um, it can only help the teacher retention crisis if we're investing in teachers and allowing them to develop. And so your work has inspired many and will continue to do so for a long time. Where do you draw your inspiration from? That's really kind of you to say. Um, I definitely say I draw most of my inspiration from the students and the teachers that I work with. Um, it's seeing the shift in attitude towards reading or towards teaching reading and the progress the students make that I find really inspiring. Um, I've got a bank of really special moments in my head that I often share when I'm leading phonics training about students I've worked with or teachers I've trained who've shared stories about students they've worked with. Um, unfortunately, discussions about how students learn to read can get quite heated and hostile when two educators disagree on how best to approach this. But the experience of using a linguistic phonics approach and seeing the impact that this has is definitely inspiring. I would also say that I'm definitely inspired by the team that I work for. I'm really lucky to work alongside my team at the Teaching School Hub and I think it would be really difficult not to be inspired if you were sat around that table and working with those colleagues. 
all of my colleagues are so passionate about teacher development and teacher education um, because that's ultimately what has the greatest impact on student outcomes. So I'd say the students I work with and the team I work with. Nice, that's lovely. And do you have any final advice for teachers who are going to be obviously feeling energised and ready to up their phonics game? Oh, the Sounds Right training would be a great place to start. Um, obviously very biased as, as a Sounds Right trainer, but I wouldn't be training for them if I didn't truly believe in the impact that that programme has on student outcomes. Um, but also, if your school doesn't have a phonics champion, then uh, maybe that could be you. Maybe it's worth teach talking to your leadership team about that gap and seeing if you can create space to be that phonics champion. Yeah, I've heard loads of great things. I mean, I'm pretty like you say, you mentioned Chris such as book. He's definitely done the training, I think. Yes. Maybe he might have done it before. Yeah, but I, I only hear good things about it and certainly try and signpost it whenever anyone asks, you know, off off camera, so to speak. Um, yeah, but it's been fantastic uh, speaking to you today about all things phonics and, you know, consummate professional. You need you probably need to have a word with Matt. Because so, I know the editing for this episode is going to be much less than the editing was <laughs> for this episode. Oh, gosh. Oh, poor Matt. <laughs>